This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss uh, what is perhaps one of the most important topics in moments of difficulty and trying times, um, and that's the topic of humor. Uh, humor is essential to what we do as human beings, uh, but it's often something we forget about uh, when we're dealing with, with tragedy and difficult moments, as many of us are today. Um, and for our democracy to thrive in difficult moments, we need to find, find humor. And we're fortunate uh, to have with us uh, a good friend and I think one of the people doing some of the most exciting work on executive coaching and building thriving social environments. Uh, She's also a fantastic public speaker and an old friend, uh, Deborah Grayson Regal. Uh, Deb, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here with you. And uh, before we turn to our discussion uh, with Deb, which I'm so excited about, uh, we have, of course, our exciting scene-setting poem, maybe even a little humorous, from Zachary Suri. Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? The Ones Who Live. Let's hear it. They say humor is the only anecdote for madness, the only medicine that can prevent insanity. I remember Saturday Night Live after 9-11, even though I wasn't there. The firefighters trying to find enough courage to joke. It all seems so cathartic, the way the laughter almost makes you cry. And what did we truly learn from Hawkeye Pierce and a mash unit trying to explain war to a nation sending its sons off to die in fields in Vietnam? And the helicopter opening the dirt paths, immortal witnesses to the Cold War. They say humor is the only vacation from routine. And what was Calvin and Hobbes, the dirt-haired six-year-old crawling through the hydra-like jungles of suburban America, some ever-prescient call for young idealists, far truer than any textbook. They say absurdity is the only fair picture of life, the way Paul Simon sings us into mama pajama, and the way the illogical lie-lie-lies and chicken-and-egg soups seem to have some thematic relevance for life as a 21st-century teenager. And how can humor help us through tragedy, help explain death, the thousands falling to disappearing molecules crawling along the sand? We don't turn to some higher art, philosophy, study of death, some larger epidemiological logic for dying. No, we glue our weary bifocals to bittersweet humanity and humor, our explanation for the ones who live. That's wonderful, Zachary. Um, What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, the power of humor to uh, help us uh, move past tragedies and help explain uh, the moments that we have just lived for people who who survive these tragedies and, and, and see such suffering around them. And, and there's a range of humor you refer to, yeah. right? From Saturday Night Live to Calvin and Hobbes. Why did you include all this? Well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's really important to recognize that like, uh, pop culture is, a, in many ways, uh, one of our best ways of understanding our society and of moving past tragedy. That's fantastic. Uh, Deb, you've spent more time thinking about this than anyone else I know. Uh, How do you approach these issues? Well, first of all, I just want to say that was a beautiful poem. And what I loved about it in particular was I didn't know whether to smile or cry. 
And there's a really fine line for many of us between knowing whether to whether to laugh or whether to cry. And I think you evoked a wide range of uh, emotional experiences. So thank you for that, Zachary. Thank you. Yeah. And in terms of how do we think about it, it's interesting to think about humor, especially in challenging times. And, you know, we've had lots of challenging times. You certainly brought some specific ones up in your poem, Zachary. And I first think about humor as a way of us connecting socially, right? So whether it is a shared reference from MASH, as you said, or Calvin and Hobbes, or something that we see on the news, when people find the same thing funny, it builds or reinforces an immediate social bond and a social connection. And at times like this, uh, especially now that we're dealing with some social distancing, that's actually one of the ways that we can keep connected is by sharing things that we think are funny. And, and what do we find funny? How do we know that something's funny? One of the, the questions that was famously asked, um, I think, when they finally did another Saturday Night Live episode two weeks after September 11th was, can we be funny again? Yes, yes. And the retort was, were we ever? Right, well, yeah. I, right. Yeah. That was that was the uh, the retort that came in that made something that was funny even funnier. And Correct. So, right, and so there's a there's this traditional formula that says tragedy plus time equals comedy. Do you know that one? I've heard it, yes, yes. but I've never fully understood it actually. Yeah. So the, so the idea behind it is is that something that is brutally painful plus enough distance to not be as emotionally charged or triggered or whatever your experience was, that that ability to get a little space and distance from it, you combine those two things and you can think about it in a funny way. And, uh, and you know, there's this common, common retort that says, you know, too soon. Uh, yes. And right. And so these days, too soon may be jokes around the coronavirus. Right. But a funnier application of that is if somebody makes a joke about the Lincoln assassination and you say too soon, right? Like, it's, right. it's absurd. It's clearly not too soon. Right. Right. And so there's lots of different ways that people find humor in things. But I do always go back to that formula of of tragedy plus time equals comedy. And that isn't true for every tragedy. And nobody knows what the right amount of time for one person is may never be the right amount of time for another person, depending on the impact that that, that tragedy might have had on them. So it's a guideline rather than a rule. Right. I, I remember, I don't know if people tell this joke anymore, but it used to be that I would hear when I was growing up, people would say, if, if something terrible happened and people were ignoring it and trying to talk about something else, they would actually use the Lincoln assassination as, as a joking point of reference, right? They say, so Mrs. Lincoln, other than that, how was the theater? Exactly, right? It, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And it's something that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hoping, and Zachary, I realize I haven't checked in with you to see how you're feeling about the whole Lincoln situation. And I recognize <laughs> for our listeners, we might've said spoiler alert, because yes. we're going to reveal something that happened in American history that you might not know about. So, right, <laughs> right? all of those things. 
But if they've been in one of my classes, Deb, they yeah. definitely know about Lincoln's assassination. Uh, well, <laughs> it depends on how well they did on the test, right? Well, that's, that's true. Yeah, that, and that I is, recognize you probably grade on a curve. So, you know, I don't well, want to. You know, I often do, you know, want them to reenact certain events. Mm-hmm. And so we might, you know, we might create a theater jumping scene with, you know, guns and things of that sort. <laughs> Fascinating. I, I would love to sit in on that one day. <laughs> so so why is humor so important? Uh, Robert Gates, former Secretary of Defense and, and, and still a figure, I think, one of the few figures revered on all sides of the political spectrum, he says in his memoir that he's never met a good leader who didn't have a sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you were going to name him among his many titles as noted humorist, and I would have <laughs> no. I would have laughed at that as well, right? <laughs> so, so I when you when you share that perspective, right? Never met a great leader who didn't have a sense of humor. Part of what a, a sense of humor does is, especially with a leader, it allows you to demonstrate some vulnerability, right? And 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 it's also a way to take a risk. So when you share something that feels funny to you, you actually don't know if it's funny to the other person until it comes out of your mouth. That requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability and risk taking. And and in fact, as you had mentioned in the in the introduction, uh, I'm not just a speaker, but I also teach presentation skills and public speaking. And what I often say to my clients is, it is fine for you to start your presentation with a joke, but don't say I'm about to tell you a joke. Right. If they laugh, it was a joke. If they don't, it was a story. And yes. I mean that quite literally, right? It's a, yes. it's a joke if it's funny. A joke is a you know funny story. So for leaders, part of it is demonstrating vulnerability. Part of it is risk-taking, which are two characteristics that are really important for leaders as well. It also demonstrates that you are capable of changing your perspective. So when you use humor, it means that you're actually able to reappraise a situation, especially especially a situation that might feel stressful or overwhelming or challenging or unknown, and you're able to reappraise it and look at it in a different light. And I think all of those are key traits and and behaviors that we look for in our leaders. Um, So you talked about how we can use uh, humor to build community and uh, to to be good leaders, but how can humor uh, be used to heal us? Uh, especially in a time of tragedy. Yeah, so there's the physical aspect and the psychological aspect, and I don't want to draw an artificial firewall between the two because we know that uh, mind and body have a tremendous connection. So one thing that we know from uh, studies actually of of patients who suffered from fibromyalgia, which is, you know people who suffer from that really are often in, in constant pain or have tremendous flare-ups. And studies of patients with fibromyalgia showed that when they were using humor, they had a reduction in pain. So there is actually a a reduction of the pain that is felt from inflammation that happens physically. And when we use humor and are exposed to humor, it decreases stress, it reduces tension, it actually is shown to inspire hope, uh, and it, it gives us new ways to think about old or current situations all of which is a part of building resilience. And so having resilience and having hope and being able to choose that over despair, when you lean into humor, you are choosing that over despair, even Mm. if it's just for a moment. 
Mm-hmm. It humanizes the moment, doesn't it? It humanizes the moment. Yeah. I mean, what what I always find in in both uh, leadership settings and also in public speaking settings is a little a little humor also it creates a new kind of connection. Uh, I know you've thought about this a lot, Deborah. How would how do we understand that? You know, it's interesting. I spent five semesters teaching at the business school at, at Peking University in Beijing. Wow. And one of my concerns when I went over there was, will my humor translate? Now, of course, what really should be keeping me up at night is, do, does my humor translate even within North America? And <laughs> right. I guess the jury might still be out on that. But it, I was really concerned about whether sure. my brand of humor would translate. And there were two things that I found out. One thing that I found out was actually something that I learned uh, from Al Gore. He didn't tell me directly. I have not yet had the honor. And and to talk about Al Gore and humor is surprising enough. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, As, um, as you talk about Gates and noted, noted humorist, but uh, you know, one of the things in his, uh, oh, I'm losing the name of what was his incredible video, Inconvenient Truth. Thank you. Inconvenient Truth. Inconvenient Truth. And so he starts off Inconvenient Truth by talking about, you know, I was some version of, you know, I was almost the president of the United States, something that was very self-deprecating. Too soon, Deborah. Too soon. I'm sorry. And spoiler alert, by the way, (laughs) right? As we gear up for the 2020 election, both of those at once. And one of the things that I learned uh, is that self-deprecating humor, which is something that is pretty common for me, pretty common for most of my friends and colleagues, is something that doesn't translate into hierarchical cultures. So I knew that going in to teach in China, I actually had to work to establish my credibility, which meant that I couldn't use one of my old tactics, which is self-deprecating humor. So that was number one. The other thing that I did learn was that people in China have children, sometimes just one, but right, mm-hmm. people in China have children. And so you can joke about common things about children. People yes. are married. You can joke about things that have to do with marriage. There are some common experiences that bond us and, and translate over time. And I will just tell you one story, which was the first time that I went over to Beijing, I decided like, this is a really big trip. I need a grown up to come with me. Important note, I was 37 at the time, but you know, you don't really feel like a grown up. So I brought my mother in law with me. And the woman who was running the. I can't believe you brought your mother in law. I brought my mother in law. Take my mother in law, please. And I brought my mother in law with me and and introduced her to the woman who was running the program who came to the hotel to, to meet me. And for the next few days, she kept asking me, is that your mother or your mother-in-law? She was very confused. And I assumed that I wasn't being clear in my language. And I I kept saying, no, that's my husband's mother. That's my mother-in-law. And at day three, she said to me, you know, Deborah, in China, mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law don't always get along. And I said... (laughs) We have that in America too. And it was such a great reminder about how many things are universal no matter yes. where you are. 
Yes. And it made a connection for you that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Absolutely. Right? And uh, and it became a wonderful story, uh, you know, to tell about my mother-in-law and to my mother-in-law. And in fact, at my mother-in-law's funeral, which was a year and a half ago, uh, I stood up and started by saying, I know that daughters-in-law all over the world have been waiting for the opportunity to get up and speak in public about their mother-in-law. This is not going to be that kind of eulogy because I loved her so deeply and was able to tell that story. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh, that's that's really, really, really wonderful. And it, it brings up another point about humor that I think uh, we need to talk about, which is that leadership uh, in a democracy, in a complex society where you have all sorts of difficult moments like the ones we're living through now, right? It, re- it requires leaders who can adjust to circumstances. You want to believe that the people you're working with with, the people in positions of authority have the ability to adjust to unforeseen circumstances. And the story you're telling highlights how humor often comes out of that, right? It turns the awkward into something that's not just awkward, but now a connection, right? Yes, yes. And one of my favorite phrases is embrace the awkward. And embracing the awkward goes back to being vulnerable, going back to being a, a risk taker, uh, making those human connections because everybody feels awkward at different times. And I think it's something that I learned starting in college when I became a founding member of the University of Michigan's first improvisational comedy troupe. And improv at its best and most brilliant is about embracing not just the unknown, but the awkward. And so in our leaders, we are looking for people who can be flexible and who can improvise, but they have to start with a foundation of credibility. Nobody is going to trust you to improvise if all you ever do is improvise and haven't demonstrated some sound thought and sound strategy leading up to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is humor correlated with intelligence? Well, since I'm hilarious, I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> it correlates with modesty too, I can tell. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Yeah. I think inversely proportional. <laughs> so I, I don't a- I actually know the, the real studies around that. I would imagine if you think about Gardner's multiple intelligences, right? It's a, right. it is a kind of intelligence that could be relational, you know, communication, environmental. I think it's its own kind of intelligence. I think so too. Zachary? Well, I just think too that humor can also be used as a very powerful uh, tool to disarm the arguments of others. I mean, as I mentioned in my poem, one of my favorite TV shows is MASH. And what they do is they use humor to sort of disarm American militarism in a very, in a very fascinating but also hilarious way. How can we use humor to, to disarm arguments that in many ways, are, are based in a very serious stoic. Yeah, yeah. Is it is 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 part of our problem with hyperpartisanship, Deb? That that we have humorless uh, arguments that are being thrown from one side to the other, and humor could unpack that in certain ways. I like the use of the word "could" in there, as opposed to a "should" or a "will." I think it could, and I think that humor is so subjective that it requires special care as well. So I I think about the fact that what is funny for one is not necessarily funny for somebody else. And you think about the impact of humor that can have uh, racist 
right. undertones, right. homophobic undertones, all of those kinds of things that may, you know, I think about a, a show like All in the Family, right? All in the Family was hilarious at its time. And you could not get away with that same script today. So right. things change over time. Sensibilities change over time. And individuals have certain things that feel uh, untouchable for them that th- you might find funny and they may not. So I think it's a we could and we also need to be thoughtful and careful about it. There's a really good point that it's not just that some things are too soon to be humorous. Some things might no longer be humorous that were humorous in the past. Uh, yes, that's, that is true as well. And I also think about the recent movie, Jojo Rabbit. I don't know if you, did you see that? I did. I did. I I found it very funny. I don't know if you did. I thought, I found it very funny and very touching. I I loved, I loved it. And I was a late adopter because in my mind, I thought, which is where I keep my thinking in my mind, (laughs) I thought to myself, why am I going to see a Nazi comedy? Right. Right? right. What about right. that could possibly be funny making light, you know, uh, right. if it's not Hogan's heroes. And right. I didn't see it for the longest time. And then I had a really long flight and I said, okay, the worst that happens is I turn it off. I didn't pay $15 to see it in my local movie theater. Right. And it was so funny and so warm and delightful that it helped me think about humor, which is how often we have biases around what we believe to be funny. And like any other bias, it's important to take the unconscious and make it conscious and run, you know, and experiment with it, but experiment with it on yourself. I I agree. I I, I thought it, it, I I would have thought it was too soon Uh, for Jews. It should always be too soon to make fun of Nazism and the Holocaust. But on the other hand, it was funny, but it also, it, it, it cut deeply yeah. Because of the current moment we're in. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was humor that worked because it was distant from the tragedy, but close to another tragedy. And that, that to me was, was, was actually what made it so moving. Yes. And I'm also experiencing that with Hunters. I don't know if you're watching that on Amazon Prime. No, no. So, what is Hunters? So Hunters is a show on Amazon Prime. It stars um, uh, Al Pacino oh as, um, as a team of renegade Nazi hunters because Nazis are, are are living in America takes place in the 1970s and it is a based on a true story and it is like watching every episode to me feels like a Quentin Tarantino movie a full Quentin Tarantino movie that is uh violent and filthy and hilarious and you are constantly scanning you're watching it and scanning for can i be laughing at this can i be laughing at this and you just do that's amazing yeah that's amazing we have to add that to our list add that to your list so so deb one of the things we like to do on our podcast each week is also really talk about not simply how we understand the issue but how all of us particularly our younger listeners can move forward and and use this perspective to enhance uh, their experience with our democracy today. What is your advice? I know you're, again, the best in the business. What's your advice that you give to to people about how they can incorporate humor, uh, not to become stand-up comics Mm -hmm. and improv artists overnight, that's not going to happen, but to incorporate humor into their daily lives, into their leadership, into their public presentations? How should people who want to be better at this become better? One of the coaching questions that I often ask the leaders that I work with is, 
what's another way of looking at this? So whether they're wrestling with a, a business challenge and a communication challenge, a, a change they didn't anticipate, we're, we all have a way of looking at something. And when you ask, what's another way of looking at it? And then you ask it again, and what's still another way of looking at it? And then you ask it again, what is still another way of looking at it? By the time you ask that question three times, four times, or five times, number one, they often hang up on me after the third time, <laughs> but it forces you to shift your perspective over and over again. And humor at its core is a different perspective on something, right? It is it is reframing, refocusing, and reappraising a current situation through a different lens. And so I would say to anyone, if you are wanting to lean more into humor, keep asking yourself the question, what's another way of looking at this? And what's another way of looking at this? And what's another way of looking at this until you might get to something that is so absurd or get to something where you're so tired of thinking of perspectives that your defenses are down and you realize there may actually be a perspective that has some humor in it. I love that because one of one of our themes uh, of, in, in our podcast and the way we approach democracy is to think of democracy as the humanization of empathy, mm. that it's about creating connections that are not just about voting in a ballot box, but about caring about and connecting with communities that are different from oneself. I, I've long thought that's really what James Madison meant by pluralism, by the intersection between different communities that maintain their difference but still feel connected and part of some larger political, social, and cultural body. I love what that. you've just described is, is, is actually empathy. It's about trying to see the issue from many different perspectives mm-hmm. uh, and, and using humor almost as, as an exercise, right? Yes, it's an exercise. It's another perspective, right? And if we give ourselves permission to explore multiple perspectives that can all be true at once, right? So if we think about what's going on now, it's hard, it's scary, it's overwhelming, it's fascinating. Uh, Maybe it's a little bit fun as we lead into our adaptive leadership and experiment with new things. Uh, It's overwhelming. It's underwhelming. And another perspective is it's kind of pretty funny that this is what the zombie apocalypse is now, except that we're all in, you know, sweatpants as opposed to, as opposed to armor. Right. Now, there, there is something incredibly absurd about our, you know, having these self-important meetings on Zoom and other conferencing software where most of us are not even wearing pants. Yes, that's fascinating. Uh, yes. So TMI, too soon, spoiler alert, all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Zachary, is, is this helpful for you? I know you and, and other uh, students of mine struggle with, uh, on the one hand, trying to be engaged and trying to, you know, really use your energy and your anger at times to to change the world, uh, but at the same time wanting to to make it humorous and fun. Does this does this help with that? I think it definitely does, and I've seen uh, that in myself that students who who are vehemently opposed to one another when it comes to all sorts of things can come together over humor that may in fact be self-deprecating or it may in fact completely undermine the positions that they're taking. But something that's funny can really just bring everyone together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and how do you deal with another issue that, that Deb brought up so well? How do you deal with the things that might be funny but also uh, off base uh, or offensive? Well, I think what's, what's really great about the moment we're in is that we can have a discussion about this. Uh, 
I, I think there are a lot of people who disagree, um, even among young people, about what is offensive and what isn't. But just having that discussion is what really is important. Yes, yes, yes. Deb, uh, final question, maybe maybe the question that matters most to, to all of us. Um, when will we be able to have some real humor about this this terrible moment that we're dealing with? I don't know about you, but I'm finding humor in it already. And I'm not finding humor in the global scope of people losing their lives. And I am able to find humor in small things. So So for example, I have, my kids are both college freshman. My, my daughter attends Duke. My son attends University of Michigan, like his mother, go blue. Sorry. And, uh, you know, I, before they went to college, I had said to them a year ago, if you don't get into your first choice schools, uh, we're going to have college at home. We're going to call it bunker. You you'll, you know, live and work in the basement. You'll come up for meals and that's what we'll have. Well, when they both came home from college, I said, welcome to bunker. You (laughs) and our first night at dinner, my my daughter Sophie said, I have to say the meal plan's pretty good here. <laughs> right. So there is there's opportunities to find humor uh if you're if you're ready and willing to look. Well, and and I'm sure that made the what was a an awkward and perhaps anxiety-ridden dinner much more fun and it, it, it connected you all as a family, even more than I know you're already deeply connected. Yes, yes. And of course, I am the funniest. And every member of my family is funny. Not as funny as I am, but but still funny. Well, and, and I want to say, I've, I've known you, Deb, now for about 30 years. And uh, you- More, more. more well, come on, come on. More. Uh, I'm 31, so it's only, it can't be more than that. Got uh, it, got it. <laughs> uh, but one of, the, one of the things that I think has always made you successful in every setting that I've seen you in, and I've seen you in many settings- is just this, that you you have an ability to make people feel comfortable, to disarm people, and to connect people. And I think it's your humor. I think it's it's, it's your ability to see the world from different perspectives. And, and I really want to thank you for sharing that with us. I want to encourage our listeners uh, to look you up. We, we, we have your information on the website and uh, attached to the podcast everywhere it's posted. And uh, I hope people will will benefit from this introduction and also to, to working more closely with you. Uh, we need we need your humor as we uh, enhance our democracy in these difficult times. Uh, and, and Zachary, uh, thank you for a wonderful poem. Uh, and thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.